Welcome to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. We are a watchdog program for social, economic, political, and cultural issues here in New York City, and I'm your host, David Brand. My co-host, Jeff Simmons, is off today. It's definitely a different kind of Memorial Day weekend we're having here in New York City right now, and I thank you for taking some time to join us today. It's crazy that nine weeks have passed since I was last sitting with Jeff and engineer Max Schmid in the WBAI studio doing our show. Since then, we've been doing it remotely from our home studios. Max, bravely going into the studio every day to serve as engineer, and we thank you for that, Max. But that day, May 16th, I'm sorry, March 16th, was when Mayor Bill de Blasio announced he was closing schools to stop the spread of the coronavirus. And that's also when he first started talking about the potential stay-at-home orders and a major economic shutdown that could be coming. Now we're two months into this thing, and we're still trying to figure out what we can and cannot do, what we should or definitely should not do. And I know a lot of us have quarantine fatigue, but we need to stay the course. Keep distancing, keep saving lives, and don't get complacent. Let's keep our masks on. We have an awesome show on City Watch today. We always get great guests on City Watch, but today is no different. Earlier this week, I spoke with Congress member Grace Meng about federal COVID-19 relief, her re-election bid, and her fellow members of the New York City delegation, including her perspective on Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I also talked to outspoken state senator Jessica Ramos, who definitely doesn't hold back when she talks about the rights of immigrants and low-income New Yorkers, and who also doesn't pull any punches when she talks about ineffective leadership and, in this case, the impact of the, quote, pitiful feud, her words, between Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio. News correspondent Celeste Katz-Marston also brings us the next installment in her excellent series, New York City in Crisis, Coronavirus Diaries. But let's get things started with my conversation with Congressmember Grace Meng, who has represented New York's 6th Congressional District since 2013. The district covers a big chunk of the borough, from near the Long Island border, through Flushing, up into Maspeth in the western portion of Queens. The district includes Elmhurst, one of the communities hardest hit by COVID-19 in the city, the state, and really the entire world. By a quirk of districting, or maybe you could call it gerrymandering, Meng is the only member of Congress whose entire district is located in Queens. So think of this. There's six other members representing a piece of the borough, but they also represent Manhattan or Brooklyn or even Nassau County. And so a borough of 2.4 million people only has one dedicated member of Congress. Meng has been a champion for immigrants who make up a huge proportion of her district. But for the first time since getting elected, she faces a primary challenger, two in fact. Melga Guerin, an organizer and member of the Democratic Socialists of America, is running to Meng's left. And Sandra Choi, an economic development professional, says she has a lot in common philosophically with Meng in terms of political ideology. But she criticizes Meng's close ties to the Queens County Democratic Organization, which is often referred to as a political machine. I spoke with Meng Friday afternoon. Here's that interview. Congressmember Grace Meng, welcome to City Watch. Thank you. It's great to be on. So there have been some serious issues with the impact of federal relief funding for New York since the pandemic began. When the initial round of, of federal aid came through last month, we trailed, we trailed nearly every state in terms of money per positive COVID-19 patient. The initial uh, round of payroll protection program funding reached very, very few small businesses here in Queens. 
Meanwhile, the state and the city have put a lot of budget issues onto the federal government. Uh, we can't fund incentive pay for essential workers, for example, without federal government support. How would you assess the impact of federal COVID-19 aid on New York and New York City in particular? Sure. Well, obviously, uh, Congress has now passed uh, four bills, uh, two large ones. Uh, New York is, as all of you know, uh, the hardest hit state pretty much uh, through this coronavirus pandemic. I think we have like 30 percent of the deaths from coronavirus compared out of the, the rest of the country. And that's a crazy amount. Mm. You know, my colleagues who, you know, Queens isn't always on the map uh, of the, and, or on the minds of people around the country. But I will tell you, especially in the early weeks, uh, seeing images on TV and the newspaper and the Internet uh, from our local hospitals here in Queens and what was going on the ground, um, people and Congress know Queens and they know New York now. Um, and, you know, I will say that Congress did work in a bipartisan way to pass legislation. But up until the HEROES Act, I was still hearing from constituents. You know, I would be on, you know, any given Zoom call or teletown hall, and people would say that there are still so many constituents who have not been able to be helped by the various bills that Congress had passed. So, you know, we had the CARES Act, which, for example, did uh, a lot of good to help so many people, uh, expanding and, and creating the types of loans like PPP, mm -hmm. um, cash rebates. Uh, expanding uh, unemployment insurance benefits. But however, I was still hearing from folks, just like you mentioned with the PPP loans, we are still asking for transparency. We don't have accurate and adequate information as to where those loans went, the demographics of the small business owners mm -hmm. who actually got the loans. Um, and with what's, what's your sense of the demographics of the business owners that got the loans? Well, I don't have scientific uh, data, but I will tell you, um, we kept hearing up until we passed that mini bill, which gave a supplement and allowed smaller lenders to mm -hmm. um, help people apply. Up until that mini bill, we were hearing from people that they kept getting rejected, mm -hmm. that the banks wouldn't help them process it, or the bank said no more, we ran out of funds. And so we were hearing stories like that all day long, all week long. And then after the mini bill passed, you know, within a few days, uh, the call subsided. We started hearing some positive stories. Mm -hmm. um, so while we are still asking for SBA and Treasury to give us more uh, detailed information, um, we, we really need to do that before any potential uh, additions to, to that program. But even with the cash stimulus, you know, you had to have a Social Security number in order to mm. get the benefits. And mm -hmm. so I still had a lot of constituents, either they only had the ITINs or they were married, even though they had a social number, they might be married someone to someone with ITIN. Mm. And so they weren't able to get, get the money. And what, what's ITIN? So um, you basically says that you pay taxes. Mm. So you are a taxpayer. So you mentioned the HEROES Act, and I was hoping you could talk more about that. It's a new major relief package that includes even more aid uh, following the CARES Act, food and unemployment assistance, more municipal and state aid, yep. another round of stimulus checks, hazard pay, yep. even health insurance premium assistance for people who have laid off, been laid off. The Senate Republicans have been holding that up, correct? Um, and they tend not to budge. So I'm w wondering, is there anywhere that you're willing to compromise on that relief package? Uh 
this bill is really answering the needs uh, of the American people. I think this bill, the HEROES Act, is long overdue. I w I, if I had my way, we would have passed it the day after we passed the supplemental funding to the PPP loans, that mini bill. Um, it's long overdue. Like I was saying, as much as Congress did, we were still hearing from so many people in our Queens County that they weren't able to get any real help from all the legislation that Congress had passed thus far. Um, and so, you know, Mitch McConnell can hold up or try to hold up this bill. Um, he is literally uh, telling the American people that they can't get hazard pay if they're essential workers. Um, he's telling, and this is something I worked on, 12 million students across the country that they can't access the internet to do their homework. Uh, he's telling families who are literally starving that they can't get more help uh, through their SNAP programs. Um, so many parts uh, of this bill are popular with the American people. And not just that, with the state and local aid that you mentioned, this is crucial for towns where they don't get direct federal funding on a normal mm. basis. Mm. They depend on legislation like the HEROES Act. And these often are Republican uh, town mayors, city mayors. So he should talk to his Republican counterparts across the country and see if there is a true need for something like the HEROES Act. And I think he will get the real story if he's willing to listen to the American people. Is there a piece of that act that you are uh, extremely passionate about that you you would never vote for a package that didn't include a speci this specific piece? I think one thing that I probably heard the most about were the ITI and the taxpayers that even though they didn't have a social security number, uh, these could be undocumented. They could be green card holders. These are people who pay taxes. Um, and then even though Congress had passed multiple pieces of legislation, we were hearing from people almost every day that they were not able to get any sort of financial assistance from the bills that Congress had passed. Um, and so we actually did see this. The Republicans tried to insert an amendment. They call it the motion to recommit. Um, basically, that amendment would have stripped out this section uh, and only allowed Social Security holders to get cash stimulus payments. And that amendment failed. Uh, it was close, but mm. it failed on the floor. Um, and so I think that the Democrats uh, in the House stood strong and united to say that that is one piece that we would not be able to go without. Earlier, you had mentioned Queens doesn't necessarily get the love from people before this crisis. Uh, and yet, Queens is one of the largest jurisdictions in the country, uh, nearly 2.4 million people. But you are the only member of Congress whose entire district is located in Queens. And so Greg Meeks, he's nearly all in Queens, and I think very yeah. associated with Queens, being chair yeah. of the Queens County Democrats. But the others are split among different boroughs or counties. Uh, and I think they're more identified with those places like Tom Swazi in Long Island, mm -hmm. Carolyn Maloney in Manhattan, Nidia Velasquez, Keem Jeffries with Brooklyn, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She's split evenly, but she lives in the Bronx. Yeah. So how, how has this setup affected representation and federal funding for Queens? 
Um, well, look, we have in my district, and I'm not biased, I have the best district out of all those members, best district in the country. We have the best food. The um, you know, we have a bunch of hospitals. We have two public hospitals, part of the HHHC uh, system. Uh, Queens Hospital Center and Elmhurst are both in my district. Um, and so, you know, we don't have to go very far to uh, make the state and Congress pay attention to the needs of what is going on and the families that have been hurt uh, because of the pandemic right here uh, in our district, um, in our borough. Queens, um, I believe, I am not caught up with the stats as of today, but uh, Queens has the highest number of deaths. We have the lowest number of hospital beds mm -hmm. uh, in correlation to the number of people. Um, so we were uh, weakened from the beginning. Um, and so it's it's not a surprise that we have had a disproportionate number of people affected and dying from the coronavirus. You know, the city and the state, they put out these rules for us to safely quarantine, uh, which is important. But a lot of my constituents um, and a lot of it is where me and Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, where our districts meet, that Elmhurst, mm. East Elmhurst, Corona area, mm -hmm. these constituents could not quarantine. Many of them live in crowded spaces. They might live with someone who has the virus. Uh, they might live with someone um, who, you know, some of these constituents were asking me for thermometers. They mm. don't have a thermometer at home to see if they even have a fever to be tested for the virus. Um, and so they, they are already living in, in tougher conditions. You mentioned Representative Ocasio-Cortez, and I've noticed that Queen's Chamber of Commerce, for example, has had town hall meetings, virtual town halls, where they'll invite all of the Queen's delegation, um, and Ocasio-Cortez doesn't attend. The New York Post wrote a story recently why Democrats are avoiding AOC. She didn't vote for the, the CARES Act, but you seem to take issue with that story, and uh, you tweeted something saying, respectfully, this is inaccurate from my experience. I've personally been on multiple calls, texts with at AOC oh. from calls with local hospitals, the calls with the New York delegation and Governor Cuomo to organizing food and PPE deliveries. So I wonder, are, are you endorsing uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez for re-election? Oh, um, well, first of all, I, I speak the truth. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'll get to that in a second. I will say that I don't know what the process for the Queen's Chamber has been. I ha I myself haven't made all of the um, town halls. I know that I was on one of them, so I don't know what their process or invitation process was. Um, but I was literally telling the truth. I thought that that article was a little unfair. One of the first calls that sort of town halls that we ever had uh, in relation to coronavirus and Queens, um, her and I set uh, a town hall up with all of our appropriate uh, relevant hospitals. Um, and that was way in the beginning. She's been on, as far as I can tell, most, if not all, of any calls we've had. We've had a lot of New York delegation member calls, um, some with senators, the senators and some with the governor. She's been on virtually all of them, and she's raised her hand virtually uh, mm. in a lot of them. So I know she's she's been present. Um, in terms of endorsement, she hasn't asked me yet. Um, I think a lot <laughs> well, of this. Let's make some news here. I'm asking, would you endorse her for re-election? I support my colleague and friend for re-election. Okay. Yes. Um, and meanwhile, you're running your own re-election campaign right now. You have two yes. challengers. And Correct. I think it's the, the first time since you won the seat that you've had 
primary challengers, correct? Um, on the primary side, yes. I've had general election mm-hmm. challengers, yes. One of the challengers is a member of the DSA. Um, and so, you know, that gradually gaining momentum in Queens. But I wonder, how are you getting out the vote during the pandemic and during the lockdown? That's a good question, I think, for candidates, not just in New York, but across the country. And I think it's pretty much a similar strategy for all candidates. Um, We are not being political. You know, we're not calling people for money. We're not Mm -hmm. calling people straight up to ask for their vote. Um, We are calling um, because and, and doing what any neighbor uh, in our districts would do. And I would say this for uh, opponents even in the same campaigns, you know, um, calling to check up on our neighbors, calling to make sure that, you know, it's a it's a large district. These are large districts. These are diverse districts. Just because, you know, we issue a press release and it gets covered in one paper doesn't mean the rest of our constituents have all seen it. Mm-hmm. So we have to constantly try to get the word out. Like if there's a testing site that's open, we have to like try 10 different ways to get the message out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's literally what we've been trying to do and checking with people and letting them know um, what resources and what information is available for them in our district. It seems like it's kind of a fine line for politicians right now or candidates yeah. because you want to show empathy and support, but it's also yeah. election season. And yeah. so that can really be seen as pandering, I think, if right, you say right. like, uh, here, I'm here to help, I'm here to help. And oh, by the way, vote for me on June 23rd. Sure. Um, how do you think, what do you think of the city and state response to the pandemic in New York? I mean, I think my colleagues around the country, especially because there's been a lack of um, responsiveness, at the, to say the very least, from the White House. I know a lot of my colleagues, they tune into Governor Cuomo's uh, daily press briefings mm-hmm. um, because it provides them some sense of leadership and, and facts, quite frankly. Um, the city has, Mayor de Blasio and his team, I will say, have been super responsive. Anytime we call, whether it's a, a small issue like, you know, this apartment building, uh, you know, they, they need food access or, you know, help us connect them to something that's more convenient. Small issues um, to larger issues of establishing testing sites, for example, um, are, they've been really responsive. Um, and, yeah, so... They're, they're trying their best. Is there anything that needs to be addressed in your district right now that you keep hearing, but that the city or that the state has not addressed and that uh, needs to get taken care of? Um, I will always keep calling for more testing. I think that's mm-hmm. really the only way out of this. And the governor mm-hmm. and the city have uh, they've opened up more testing sites in the last week in my district, but we still need more. Um, I would say more partnerships for food pantries. We are seeing more and more as this pandemic progresses, um, the need for people to find food. Our pantries, the few that we have, the lines are around the block. Queens is diverse. We need to make sure that they are culturally appropriate mm-hmm. in terms of the meals or whatever food products are mm-hmm. in the grocery bag that they receive. Um, and so there's a lot of matching and connecting the dots. You know, I've been working on legislation and I know Senator Ramos has worked on this a lot, um, making sure, you know, we're hearing stories about farms in New York and across the country. They aren't able to get their food products out. Right. Mm-hmm. Dumping milk. We've heard mm-hmm. about these stories. Meanwhile, our 
our local bodegas are, they don't have enough uh, fresh foods to sell. How do we, you know, I have legislation to make it easier for the farms to get fresh produce, uh, dairy and meats to our local bodegas. And how do we how do we supplement what they're doing? Because unlike maybe a suburban area in the rest of America, there might not be a stop and shop or food universe uh, mm -hmm. in every neighborhood. Many people in my district depend on that local bodega or deli, and they need to have more options there. So, you know, we're trying to uh, bolster that didn't make it into the last Heroes Act. So that is something that I would I'd love to put in. And we just have a few more moments. So I wanted to ask, what is your vision? for what New York City is gonna look like, and maybe specifically what your district is gonna look like once this crisis subsides. Gosh, I think that even when the pause is lifted, people will be still very scared. They'll be scared to go out. They'll be scared uh, to go to restaurants, scared to go to school. If you told me my two kids could go back to school tomorrow, I don't know if I'm ready for that. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm too nervous. Um, I think that you know, in terms of access to healthcare, I think has truly been something that in a preventative way, we can do more here in Queens. Mm -hmm. um, obviously Queens as a borough has lost multiple hospitals in the last two decades, but there are, for example, ways that we can have uh, it more easy for someone to see a doctor, right? Maybe we start, and I'm not an expert, but maybe we start reanalyzing the way that patients and doctors interact. Um, a lot of people either don't have time to go to the doctor or they're just not comfortable and they don't want to go to the doctor. You talk to a lot of my constituents, they haven't been to the doctor in years. Mm -hmm. And the only time that they go to the doctor is if there's some uh, emergency, urgent situation and they go to the emergency room. The emergency room is not supposed to be your you know, <laughs> general practitioner, but that is the case and the reality for so many folks. So you know, how do we get more um, strengthened? And we got... Uh, um, some funding for one of our local healthcare centers, Charles B. Wang Health Center in Flushing, for example. But how do we allow them to do more to do to take care of people's preventative healthcare needs up front? Uh, will save a lot of money in the long run. It's cheaper than them having to go to the ER in a more serious uh, situation. Well, Representative Grace Meng, thank you for joining City Watch. Thank you so much. non-commercial, community and progressive radio station that has been serving the tri-state area for six decades. Again, I'm your host, David Brand, coming to you from my at-home studio. We've been broadcasting remotely, producing remotely since mid-March. We have our engineers like the great Max Schmid, who is going to the studio to make sure these shows can get onto the air, and we're keeping it going during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's great to know that WBAI continues doing its thing and sharing community news and unique perspectives with New York City during a tough time for news organizations. We are in the midst of a spring membership drive right now, so I want to go through my pitch. It's a tough time for news organizations, and WBAI depends on contributions from our listeners to continue bringing you great coverage and interviews. In recent weeks, we've had 
interviews with Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, activist and former Queens DA candidate Tiffany Caban, State Senator Julia Salazar, former Council Speaker Christine Quinn, and five candidates for Queensboro President, all on our show. We want to continue bringing you that caliber of reporting and that level of interviews, so please consider making a sustaining contribution and becoming a BAI buddy. Listeners can become buddies by going to give2wbai.org and clicking buddies on the upper left-hand corner of the screen. Follow the prompts there. You can call our call center at 516-620-3602 and say you want to become a BAI buddy in the name of whatever program or the name of all the programs. But let's face it, you got to say in the name of City Watch. That's what you're listening to right now. I'm your host, David Brand. My co-host, Jeff Simmons, the great Jeff Simmons, is off today. We'd love it if you shout us out when you make that contribution. You can also text WBAI to 41444 and follow the prompts on your phone. We appreciate the support. For our next segment, I'm going to turn it over to news correspondent Celeste Katz-Marston with the next installment in her excellent series, New York City in Crisis, Coronavirus Diaries. You're listening to WBAI New York. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. This is New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary. My name is Ling Tang. I live in Astoria, Queens. I am a dancer, teacher, and arts manager. I'm originally from Wuhan, um, but for the past 17 years, I've been living in the U.S. So we're still very close, connected to our family there. A four-generation household, age 4 to 94, is stranded at home. So from New York, we made frequent calls to find out how everyone's doing because the situation was getting worse. And each week, a family there would send us videos and photos of their at-home activities from singing, dancing, poetry reading, cooking. And they even celebrated my grandma's 94th birthday. It was amazing to see how they were able to stay so calm, spirited, and healthy during the entire lockdown. But it's hard to believe that weeks later from Wuhan to New York, we are now experiencing the crisis ourselves. Since New York under pause, I lost all my teachings and performances. That includes uh, several school residencies and seniors in the programs, performances as part of the Asian Heritage Month celebration Queens International Children's Festival, and so on. Many Lunar New Year events was canceled across the city in January and February due to the early panic among the Chinese-American communities. So I was kind of prepared for something worse coming. Since um, schools were closed, I taught one week of virtual lessons for the Flashing Town Hall at Home program, and gave a few other workshops online. However, with New York uh, DOE's restrictions on video conferencing, I was not always allowed to see students live on the screen, which was especially challenging for dance instructions. Um, some of the dance props I use because I teach traditional Chinese dance are culturally unique, such as long silk ribbons and fans. 
I had students use home materials such as scarves, pencils, magazines to DIY their dance props. So they could follow me along when they were uh, in quarantine at home. As a first-generation immigrant, having gone through many difficulties pursuing a better life in America, whether it's family separation, it's learning the language, getting degrees and jobs, and earning green card and citizenship, every step was not easy. So what I have learned from past experience is that so when crisis is here, when there's tension against our um, like community, I remember there are places in the world where people still struggling, still don't have democracy, don't have freedom of speech. So somehow I feel that it's fortunate to be a New Yorker and to be an Asian American here. And uh, especially in New York, it's a tough city full of energy. And we are surrounded by diverse cultures. Um, there are many people like us. So even during this worst time, like right now, I can see some hope. Ling Tang is a dancer and educator who lives in Queens. Stay tuned for more installments of New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary, and for the latest news and updates on COVID-19. Thanks a lot, Celeste. To listen to Celeste's entire series, New York City in Crisis, Coronavirus Diaries, visit WBAI.org. For the final segment on this Memorial Day Sunday edition of City Watch, I spoke with State Senator Jessica Ramos, a champion for immigrants and working class New Yorkers whose district, which includes Jackson Heights, Corona, and East Elmhurst in Queens, has been devastated by COVID-19. I lived in Madrid for a while after college about 10 years ago, and I recently got a sense of the international reach of the coronavirus crisis in Queens when I started getting Facebook messages and WhatsApp messages from friends I made over there in Spain who were asking me what it's like in Queens and how am I doing because they had specifically heard about Corona Queens and about Elmhurst Hospital in particular on the news or read about it in the newspapers over there. just shows the international reach of this crisis. But the outbreak here was not inevitable, as Ramos says. The extremely disproportionate impact on low-income communities of color, especially immigrants, wasn't inevitable either, she explains. In fact, she says, it was a man-made crisis. Listen to our full interview, recorded Tuesday. State Senator Jessica Ramos, thank you for joining City Watch. Hey, David, how are you? Thank you so much for having me. So New York City released zip code level data on the rate of COVID-19 and the death rate related to COVID-19. Four of the top six zip codes with the highest rate of cases are located in your district, which includes Jackson Heights, Corona, and Elmhurst. Uh, For months, these places have been known as the epicenter of the epicenter. And you have said that many of these deaths could have been prevented, this is a quote, if we got resources to our people faster, but our leaders failed to do so. Now that we have the data, we need our government to take swift action to protect our people. What is that swift action? What do you mean? Well, I think that we have very few days in the legislative session to pass bills that really help bring economic relief to working families in New York. June 1st is coming closer by the minute. Um, People are running out of cash for food. And I know that because every week 
the line at the food pantry in my office gets longer and longer. Mm. And those are problems that can be prevented when we're one of the richest states in America and when we have so much food available, it just needs to be distributed properly. So, so what sorry what kind of what kind of legislation would make that happen? Well, I think it's a combination of action and legislation. Look, I think that ultimately we are being the universe is giving us the opportunity to reinvent what our food supply line looks like. Um, But of course, you know, I'm going to pitch my bill for the worker bailout. Because the fact of the matter is that there are too many New Yorkers who don't even qualify for unemployment uh, or the pandemic unemployment assistance program. And I won't get into the problems that the Department of Labor uh, is getting into uh, and has right now. But um, I I do want to say that not enough New Yorkers are receiving any sort of economic relief in order to make ends meet. And that is a problem. I mean, if you look at one of the uh, actually the the top uh, zip code in my district that was impacted by covid, which is East Elmhurst, if you think about it, it's the neighborhood that does not even have a doctor not even a private one. It's the neighborhood that does not have public transportation. It's the neighborhood that's a food desert, but it's the neighborhood getting a $2 billion air train for LaGuardia Airport. And that's why our priorities have been so skewed for so long. And we need to take action to reverse those harmful policies. We can't continue living this way. We need people-powered legislation. We need people-powered action. Well, speaking of priorities, in the midst of a coronavirus crisis, the state passed basically an austerity budget. Uh, The city is on the verge of cutting billions in funding itself. You've been a critic of budget cuts. And in fact, you voted against the state budget. But how can the city and state raise money right now to to fund these new services? You can legalize marijuana. You can legalize online sports betting. You can uh, put a sales tax on things that rich people buy so that they can pay, pay sales tax like the rest of us. You can tax PETA tears. You can uh, tax stock buybacks. You can impose a tax on billionaires' assets, their increased growth and in wealth every year because it's not taxed by the federal and state government. The list is so long. There is an entire menu for us to consider um, of different ways that we can generate revenue for our government to do the right thing because we have the highest concentration of billionaires in the world. We have 112 billionaires. If you're not a billionaire, you don't have to worry about my tax. And, and, And that's what I'm getting at, that we have this opportunity to say, hey, in the past, when, you know, the, the when when uh, the stock market is broken and Wall Street is hurting, we as working families are the backbone of this economy. So now if we're the ones that are hurting because we needed to stay home, because we needed to keep people safe, why is it that they can't bail us out? That Oppon- is fair. Opponents of those higher taxes, I think, would say that they would permanently drive people out of the state or out of the city. And that's something maybe we're starting to see now in terms of wealthier people fleeing New York for the suburbs or for their second homes. What do you say to that argument? Well, pre-pandemic, there is empirical data that explains uh, that 
that is not true, that people won't leave New York. People live where they want to be. And in, a few days ago, we held a legislative briefing um, where we had, well, not a billionaire. They don't particularly like me, I would think. Never <laughs> met one. Uh, I don't know what one looks like, actually, in person. Never, never uh, met Mike but, Bloomberg. Um, but I did. Oh, that's actually that's true. Eh, I guess I have met one. Um, and so uh, and so. I think that if you talk to millionaires, even they'll tell you what a killing, for example, that they made in April. Um, They're doing rather well. And, yes, some have other homes and will leave um, to be more secluded. We'll see how many come back. And um, it's an unprecedented time. And that's why I wanted to be uh, to give a fair characterization of the of the scientific evidence that we do have because it is pre-pandemic and all of this you know the situation is so fluid right now um but my bill does have a look back period that held holds those responsible for the past 10 years and i mean that's profit that's been made off the backs the sweat the blood the tears of the people who are in my district. Look at the construction workers alone. What, you know, a construction worker used to die every five days in New York, um, and and eighty percent of those deaths were uh, residents of Corona Queens. That's not a coincidence. Tell us more about your bill. What's the worker bailout? So the worker bailout bill uh, does two things. One, it imposes a tax on those 112 wealthiest people in the state of New York on their on the increase in wealth that they gain every year. So it's the unrealized capital gains of their assets, meaning money, stocks, houses, things that they buy and that they don't sell. If they didn't sell it that year. Um, then they would have to put. Then they would have to pay a tax on it. Uh, right now, there really is no federal or state tax that is imposed on that wealth. So what we're saying is, if we put a small tax on that wealth, we can generate three to five billion dollars that would allow us to give um, an economic stimulus to every worker who does not qualify for unemployment insurance or for PUA. Or for the CARES Act, we, they, uh, those who don't qualify for those assistance programs would receive $3,300 a month per month for the duration of the pandemic. And remember, uh, you know, these are people who don't qualify for the stimulus check, who don't qualify for unemployment insurance for many reasons. One, they're probably a member of the informal economy. And let me tell you, in my district, there is plenty. There are people who have small businesses and what you will call the hustle, if one, you know, what one will say that don't, you know, are part of the informal economy, don't uh, can't register. Um, uh, street vendors fall under that category. Sex workers fall under that category, mm. but also vastly undocumented people in a, in a wide range of, of prof- professions. Right. This is this is a huge pool of New Yorkers uh, that don't qualify for any of the programs that are available right now. And if we don't create something for them, that is where the economic crisis is going to be deepest. And those are the same places where the housing crisis have been deepest and where the um, and, and where the immigration crisis has been deepest. And it's places like my community. So this is why I'm, I'm urging all of my colleagues to get on board. Help me help all New Yorkers. Let's make sure we're protecting everyone 
so that as we reel in back into the economy, we're doing it better in a more principled way and we're hurting fewer people. Who's holding that up? Who has been, the? I guess, among Democrats? Because I can imagine Republican members not supporting that. But among among your colleagues, who is holding that up and what are they saying? Well, we only introduced it um, a few weeks ago. We've been working it. Like I said, um, my and by the way, my uh, amazing assembly counterpart uh, is Assemblywoman Carmen de la Rosa from Washington Heights, um, a community that's also been very hard hit. Um, and, and she and I, of course, have been in touch. Uh, we held this legislative briefing. Many of our colleagues came. Um, many signed on to the bill, but we need more. Um, so, you know, I I, I I use these platforms and these opportunities uh, to hopefully uh, convince my colleagues, um, but also to hopefully convince um, my fellow neighbors and constituents to call their elected official and make sure that they get on board. Because at the end of the day, if you think about it, even if you get the unemployment insurance, even if we qualify for PUA, you know, the people that there might be an undocumented person who's your neighbor, or maybe it's the person who comes and helps you clean your apartment or the person who, you know, babysits for you sometimes. Right. Like at this point in time, we all know a New Yorker like that and we're all interdependent. We have to help each other more than ever. I want to switch a little bit and talk about residents of NYCHA, because NYCHA has a disproportionate rate of COVID-19 cases, uh, NYCHA campuses. I've been reporting on how the state, uh, Governor Cuomo, pledged to provide sanitizer and personal protective equipment to all NYCHA tenants. Uh, To fulfill that promise, the state dropped off jugs of liquid sanitizer and forced tenant association leaders, mostly older adults, to dispense that material. Uh, So in one case, you have an 86-year-old woman in a campus in Crown Heights going door to door, pouring liquid into people's uh, old 7-Up bottles, for example. Uh, Not everyone's wearing masks. You're a state policymaker. Why don't people in power care about NYCHA residents? Why is this happening? Well, I care about NYCHA residents. I mean, I represent Woodside Houses. In fact, I grew up right outside of Woodside Houses. I attended IS-10, and, you know, we all kind of grew up together. I had plenty of play dates there. And, you know, I've been in contact with them. I visited. And um, luckily for us, though, Woodside Houses has had a testing center. Hmm. um, And it's a naturally occurring retirement community. There are many seniors who live in Woodside Houses. It's a very family-driven place. Um, And so um, the rates there are not as high, luckily. But nevertheless, we've been trying to stay in contact and make sure that everything you know, all the proper protocols are being adhered to. Um, of course, again, because they are a, se- a more senior community, um, we're worried about things like food, access to food and medicine and things like that. We're talking about people with fixed incomes, which in a way provides some stability um, that others might not have. But, you know, there are still the same hardships and they might be vulnerable because, of course, um, you know, uh, their, you know, their health might be compromised or they might have some sort of pre-existing condition. Um, so I think this is a time where we want to figure out how we can be more neighborly and help them get what they need. Um, you know, luckily there's a senior center in Woodside Houses that does an, an amazing job of, of providing meals for, for these seniors. I've been in contact with them. 
Um, and, and we just want to make sure that things continue to run smoothly. Um, I, I have to say that in, in that respect, I've been very lucky. But overall, the, the, the neglect in NYCHA is crimi- criminal. You know, everybody passes the buck, whether you're the federal government, the state government or the city government. I mean, not in the budget that we just passed, but in the previous budget, because there were zero, essentially zero dollars for NYCHA in this last mm-hmm. budget. But, but four hundred and fifty million dollars uh, that were, were allocated for NYCHA in the previous budget, I don't think have been dispersed, to be quite honest with you. And damn skippy if this is the right time that that money could go to make sure that they have air conditioners Right. For the summer to mm. make sure that, you know, and any any uh, immediate need, immediate repairs, emergency repairs that need to be made finally get made, because we know that that's one of the big uh, uh, problem areas for NYCHA. I mean, it's so hard to talk about NYCHA because, I mean, you're right. We we have not uh, given priority to maintaining public housing. And, and I think that that's reflective of the fact that we haven't been uh, making it a priority to build new, uh, real, affordable housing, right? I, and, and again, I want to go back to, I guess, my more philosophical point that if we, if we haven't made these reflections during this period of time that life has granted us, I mean, then we're wasting our time. And I got to tell you, like, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to work smart. I want to work hard. Um, I think people deserve to live a good life, um, and 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 that includes NYCHA residents. We can certainly do much more for them. We just have a couple more minutes left, so I want to ask you about an article uh, that got a lot of attention over the weekend. Uh, ProPublica published an article about New York City and New York State's slow response to the threat oh. of the coronavirus. Uh, they compared it to San Francisco and California, which acted even 10 days earlier than New York, uh, still managed to not if not control more more successfully contain the outbreak as a state lawmaker uh what do you what's your perception of this simmering dispute or this longtime dispute between mayor de blasio and governor cuomo which this article blames for a lot of the inaction or uh messaging problems leading up to state shutdown and the spread of the coronavirus so two things. Um, one is that as a lawmaker, I, I, I empathize in the sense that it's often hard to calibrate or balance public opinion with decision making. Right. Because, you know, the, the empirical evidence before you might not necessarily match the public discourse or the headlines that are being pushed in the newspaper. Um, and so and so, you know, I, I, it's a, I'm of the opinion that that's where real leadership counts. And as long as you are willing to be held accountable for your decisions and you're willing to to explain why it is that you're doing what you're doing, then then I you know then I think that that's a good relationship um, between between constituents and 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 public servants in general. Actually, um, the feud between those two gentlemen is pitiful, embarrassing, um, distracting. Um, I mean. I li- I'm the type of person I, li- I like to see things getting done. I like pe- seeing people be helped. I like seeing people happy. And I, I, I just I don't think that it contributes 
that 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 uh, dynamic between them contributes to uh, anything good. It's also historically a dynamic between pretty much every New York City mayor and New York State governor, by the way. They're not an anomaly. It's just happens to get in the way a little too often for my taste nowadays. Um, but um, but right now, um, you know, and, and I'm, I'm hoping to, to be in touch uh, with them actually today. Um, I'm really hoping that they understand now with back to the empirical evidence. Um, uh, and this is why it's so important to believe in science in general. You know, now that we have these zip codes and this data and we know um, uh, you know, who was hard, who was the most impacted? How is it that we're going to zero into these zip codes and see what were the conditions or what was the environment that lent itself uh, to such a disastrous experience? Right. Um, so that's what I'm interested in. Um, I, look, I, I, I tend to ignore them. I want them to get it together. I wish the media would just ignore their spats and, <laughs> and just like move on because there is so much more that we need to be talking about, that we need to be doing, that we need people focused on, um, that it's just it's just, I think, a much better use of everybody's time. Um, I'll tell you, you know, like, for, for example, what's on my mind this morning, which to me is the most important, is that last night in Corona. Plaza, a bunch of my street vendors were mm. harassed mm -hmm. by police officers given tickets because all they were doing was honest work and trying to make a living. It's not their fault they can't have a, a vending license. It's not their fault that they don't qualify for a stimulus check. It's not their fault uh, that they can't file for unemployment. And so they should not should not be penalized like this. I mean, all we're asking for is a little respect and a little dignity here. And we're dying for God's sake. We just talked briefly about the relationship between the, the governor and mayor. So there's one last question I want to ask you. There's a relatively popular Twitter account called Jessica Ramos for governor. Are you thinking about running and are you behind that Twitter account? I am not behind the Twitter account and I am not running for governor. No, I am not. Well, State Senator Jessica Ramos, thank you for joining us on City Watch. <laughs> thank you for having me. That's our show today. Thanks for tuning in. Happy Memorial Day weekend, everybody, and let's keep in mind all the military members who have died and everyone killed in wars or as a result of wars outside of their control. I want to thank my co-host Jeff Simmons and our news correspondent Celeste Katz-Marston. I also want to thank our excellent guests, Congress member Grace Meng and State Senator Jessica Ramos. I'm your host, David Brand, and you have been listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. If you missed any part of the show, visit us at WBAI.org, go to programs, and then archives. The show will be up in about 10 minutes. Thanks for joining us today. Stay safe, stay healthy, and wash your hands. We're all in this together. Mm -hmm.